it is the Tuesday show that shakes the Southland. We are y'all, and I am your Southern moderator, the general of all things South. John Rawl is my name, and it's great to welcome you into our army of Southern conversation. And for the next couple hours, we're going to be here to tell you all about the news of what's going on across the South today. Also, we'll let you know about some sports news. Let me just go ahead and tell you from a sports perspective, it is officially August. And this is a month of where college football kicks off. In fact, I'm going to tell you the first game of college football. And it's going to be taking place in just a couple of weeks. And I'll fill you in with the first several games on your college football schedule when we have our sports report a little bit later on today's Y'all Show. So we got plenty of good college sports news to pass along we'll also tell you in our first hour we'll have our southern political report and i've got some thoughts on tim scott who's currently running for president and me and uh, senator scott we, we need to talk and you know why we need to talk senator <laughs> i don't know who you got running your campaign but um when the ex-wife that's been your ex-wife for about seven years is getting text messages for for yours truly wanting your vote as your campaign is texting my ex-wife seven years after we've been gone though wanting support for your struggling campaign come come on man that ain't right and actually that's the second political candidate that has reached out to the ex wanting her help and actually the text has my name on it it says you know my name would you please support and so she's actually in both cases said hey do you know anything about this no i don't know anything about it i wouldn't give to these people if they texted me directly but going through the x probably not a good thing tim scott so i'm going to talk about that in fact i got the text i think i've got a copy of it i'm gonna i'm gonna read what tim scott's out there or at least somebody pretending to be a tim scott fundraiser is out saying so we got all that we got the latest polling for president in our upcoming southern political report and if time permits we actually have in just a couple of days a pretty big political race going on in the state of mississippi as they're getting ready to go vote for a new governor lieutenant governor and other statewide officials in the magnolia state and we'll give you a preview of that later this hour in our southern political report before the show ends today, we've got a Southern Book Report coming your way in hour number two. And I'm going to introduce you to Christy Woodson Harvey. She is a North Carolina-based author. And one of her books is The Summer of Songbirds. That's one of the top reads of the summer, according to many outlets. And we're going to let you know about this Salisbury, North Carolina writer, Christy Woodson Harvey. And we'll actually hear an interview she recently did about her book and her career and more. Christy Woodson Harvey, part of our Southern Book Spotlight, coming up in hour two. We'll also walk through the top selling books that you can find at your local newsstand. All that is part of our book report. Also, in hour number two, more information on the death of Paul Rubens, the Florida raised actor passing away on Monday. We'll let you know more about that. And then some unbelievable news came out of Nashville this past weekend. Craig Morgan, who, if you know anything about country music, has been one heck of a country music singer the last 20 years. 
And one of the things Craig Morgan, the native Middle Tennessean, was known for was prior to, to getting on Atlantic Records, he actually had a successful career in the United States Army. So much so, I think he was in Special Forces, or at least he was Airborne, Air Assault, all those things. Just a tremendous supporter of the military. And this past weekend at the Grand Ole Opry, Craig Morgan, on the stage of the Opry, of which I think he's a member of, was re-enlisted into the United States Army. And I think Craig is 59 years old. I didn't even know you could do such a thing. But he had his uniform on, and he has put his hand up in the air, and he has now been re-enlisted into the U.S. Army as a reservist. So we'll tell you more about Craig Morgan and the decision that he has made to, to put the uniform of our country back on. A true, bona fide country music star. All that in our entertainment headlines coming up in hour number two. And in our final hour today, oh, get ready. It's the Takapola Kid coming back. Jerry Short will be on. And he's got watermelon on his mind. So we're going to have some fun talking about watermelon with Jerry Short, the Takapola Storyteller. And all that is coming up in our final hour of today's Y'all Show. If you would like to get in touch with us here at the Y'all Show, a few ways to do that. You can, likely the easiest way is just to drop us an email. Mail, M-A-I-L, at Y-A-L-L.com. Mail at y'all.com. That's the way to do it. Or if you would rather text us, we've got a number. You can text us 24 hours a day, frankly. We'll be able to see that and pass along whatever you've got on your mind. That number is 615-208-4184. 615-208-4184. Easy ways for you to get us here as we broadcast on awesome radio stations across the southeast. And you can also find the Y'all Show in podcast form as we're available in Spotify, the iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app. And you can also find us at Apple Podcasts and Apple iTunes as well as y'all.com thank you no matter what way you're getting us we appreciate the listen and if you're podcasting us the follow let's start our headlines with a disturbing story out of the city of memphis as police there have shot a gunman who fired outside a jewish school and according to authorities this thwarted a potential mass shooting this happened outside of the margolin hebrew academy in memphis on monday afternoon And according to Memphis police, they shot and detained the gunman. Police received a report that the armed male fired his gun outside of the Hebrew Academy at 12.20 Monday afternoon. The suspect left the scene after failing to get inside the academy. That's a very good thing. And according to Police Assistant Chief Don Crow at a press conference Monday, thankfully that school had a great safety procedure and process in place and avoided anyone being harmed or injured at the scene again no one injured monday tennessee congressman steve cohen although the suspect had not been publicly identified police cohen announced that the gunman was a former student of the hebrew school Hmm, that's kind of similar to what we saw happen in nashville earlier the year in in the spring at the covenant presbyterian school there at the church in the green hills section of nashville but again the suspect shot by police a police officer shooting the suspect and then suspect transported to a local hospital in critical condition and that's the latest out of memphis again 
tragedy averted, we hope, at the Margolin Hebrew Academy in Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, by the way, if you are not familiar with it, oddly enough, Monday on the Y'all Show, we were bragging about the important role that Jews in the South have played in our American military. Well, actually, Jews in Memphis have played a big role throughout its history. In fact, I just told you about the Congressman Steve Cohen. Yes, Memphis actually has two United States congressmen in its city limits, and both are Jews, Steve Cohen, and then you've got David Kustoff, the Republican, who was a Memphis resident and a, a Jewish man. So a proud history of, of Jewish residency in Memphis. I've been to the Kroger in certain sections of Memphis, and they have a whole Hebrew section, the kosher section of their Kroger store there. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a part of Memphis's history for more than a century, and they've got more than one school there. And sadly, one school had a, it looks like a former student, come to it on the uh, Monday of this week with no good on his or her mind but luckily the school was prepared and that is wonderful wonderful news let's tell you about another jew from the south that's in the news and this is a sad story from a florida native paul rubens the actor who played Wee herman has died at the age of 70 rubens dying of cancer and in the 1980s became a pop cultural phenom playing the role of Wee herman went on to be not only on TV, but in movies and more, and then had some controversy back at that time. But yes, he had the TV series Pee Wee's Playhouse. He died Sunday night after a six-year struggle with cancer that he, that he kept private. He had a statement released after his death that said, please accept my apology for not going public with what I've been facing the last six years. I have always felt a huge amount of love and respect for my friends, fans, and supporters. I have Loved you all so much and enjoyed making art for you. Rubens grew up in Sarasota, Florida, and he died Sunday at age 70. Paul Rubens, again, known for Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Pee Wee's Playhouse, and then being arrested as well, as he got arrested more than once. I'm not going to talk about that on a day that we're announcing his death but yes a, a long history of acting and more his last role was in the connors where he played sandy batinsky back in 2019 heck he's even been in video games including call of duty and more so a, a very long acting career that started back in 1980 for paul rubens the actor and 1980s icon whether you want to put him down as a positive icon or not he's certainly somebody you think of from that time period paul rubens dying at age 70 unfortunate news for alabama the biden harris administration has decided to keep space command in colorado and that unfortunately is going to mean that huntsville alabama's marshall space flight center is not getting U.S. Space Command located to Madison County in Alabama as the Biden administration overturning a last-ditch decision by the Trump administration to move it to Alabama. And I know the senators for Alabama have spoken up against this. There's even a Democratic congressman from Alabama that's come out 
strongly against the administration's decision to keep Space Command in Colorado instead of moving it to the heart of Dixie. Mike Rogers is a congressman from Alabama, the guy that kind of got into a little bit of a, a scuffle in Congress going up against Matt Gates earlier this year. Remember, he like lunged at Matt Gates. Well, now he's in the news trying to bring Space Command to his native Alabama. Rogers saying this fight is far from over. He's chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Mike Rogers is. But yes, it looks like Biden's going to play into politics and try to keep this thing in Colorado ticking off all of the Alabamians in Congress and frankly a lot of other people that would like to see Space Command based in Bama. A story from North Carolina, a man in that state who drove his car into a group of migrant workers in a Walmart parking lot has now turned himself into police and he drove himself into these workers injuring six of them in Lincolnton, North Carolina. Daniel Gonzalez is from Hickory and he has turned himself in. It looks like he might have been a possible accomplice of these migrant workers at the Walmart parking lot. Gonzalez surrendered at the police department of Lincolnton with several relatives by his side. Family members told detectives that Gonzalez had hit the gas pedal accidentally while trying to park his car and left the scene in panic. And he rammed his SUV into a group of about 20 of the migrant workers waiting to board a shuttle bus Sunday morning. <laughs> That's an unfortunate decision there. The black SUV involved in the crash was recovered and police have charged Gonzalez with a felony hit and run and a $50,000 secure bond placed on him. The victims all treated at a local hospital, all six released late Sunday. That's great news. I, I knew this story had not gotten big time national attention, but it looks like a, a an accident, a, a pure accident at the Walmart in Lincolnton, North Carolina and the guy made an honest mistake, but he didn't have to run. And that's why he's been charged by the Lincolnton, North Carolina Police Department. Good news. All six of those migrant workers are okay. Now, the question is, where is their paperwork? Are they going to be sent back across the border if they're here illegally? That's the question. That's just a question. Other headlines across. We're glad they're alive, thankfully. The other headlines across the day. Have you ever seen the trucks running up and down the highway with the big, in my opinion, not so pretty logo on them called Yellow? They're truck truckers out there. Well, Yellow Corp has now shut down as they're headed for bankruptcy. This is a Tennessee-based trucking company, and they officially filed for bankruptcy on Monday after years of financial struggles and debt. And as a result of this, I think the number is 30,000 people are going to be out of a job with their yellow trucking hubs all across the country. And this is really not good news for an industry that desperately needs all the people out there working, hauling all the goods that we need as a society. 
Yellow was one of the nation's largest, less than truckload carriers. LTL is the term. It's a 99-year-old Nashville-based company and 30,000 jobs now evidently going to be washed away due to this bankruptcy and this closing of Yellow shutting down its operations. Hmm. Tough, tough, tough. Tough news from a business perspective here on this Tuesday. More news out of Middle Tennessee. We now, as we told you Monday, Cheatham County, the sheriff's office of that county west of Nashville, putting out a statement that they had lost an officer within the sheriff's department. Now, Monday, we did not have a name, but we can tell you that 30-year-old deputy Tasha Biggs has died suddenly and she was a Cheatham County, Tennessee Sheriff's Deputy. She was a school resource officer at Pleasant View Elementary School. And according to the Cheatham County Funeral Home, she died July 30th. She attended Cheatham County Central High School before getting into law enforcement. And just a uh, unfortunate and unexpected loss of life over the last weekend. Again, we now know a name to go along with the officer that died from the weekend and I will tell you that the local law enforcement agency did put out a statement on social media after the loss of SRO Biggs talking about suicide not sure if that's what happened here but it is a little ironic that they would put this out here and their statement says please know that there's always someone out there Available to listen if you need a shoulder to cry on to just vent. Call or text 988 for the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline or go to 988lifeline.org for more information. That was put out by the Coopertown Police Department in Cheatham County, Tennessee. Again, it appears that perhaps one of their officers, a 30-year-old deputy, tragically dying and possibly from suicide this past weekend. Another Tennessee story to tell you about. A school district in the Clarksville area has just learned how white Christians are privileged, polyamorous, and are oppressed. The Clarksville-Montgomery County School System, they recently held an engaged conference. It's called E-N-G-A-G-E. And it's held to train staff about oppression and privilege. According to documents obtained via a public records request, the Clarksville-Montgomery County School System in Tennessee sent parents defending education PDE a presentation from the district's Engage Conference. There was a presentation there called The World Needs More Purple People, and that promoted the idea of using diversity, equity, and inclusion to connect in that presentation if states that there is a clear target to respond appropriately when encountering racial and cultural bias, helping those around me feel seen and heard. I hate I missed this conference. Oppression status, according to this conference, corresponds with labels persons of color, 
women, trans, non-binary, genderqueer, LGBTQ+, polyamorous, asexual, aromantic. Aromantic. What in the heck does that word even mean? Could y'all give me a second here? I don't like to be stumped. And here's in this engaged literature a word I'm not all that familiar with. Aromantic. 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 Having no interest in or desire for romantic relationships. Huh. That's maybe what I need to identify as aromantic. All right. Well, you can learn all about it in this conference here that they just had. And this was in July. Could you imagine being a member of the Clarksville Montgomery County School System and you're not on this train of wokeness and in the middle of July you're a staff member that has to sit through this conference I'm sure probably there's a high high chance that maybe somebody within this conference that attended leaked this information to media or somebody because this is just silly stuff silly stuff and again this school district training staff on how white Christians are privileged etc alright just what you needed to know on this Tuesday <laughs> and you know what if it happens in Clarksville right there on the Kentucky line north of Nashville it is just likely to be happening somewhere in your neighborhood too just saying y'all we will continue on with more headlines in the upcoming hours including in our upcoming hour, speaking of wokeness, the capital of Alabama, and once the capital of the Confederate States of America, it has had two high schools there named for CSA leaders, Robert E. Lee High School and Jefferson Davis High School. Well, the wise folks at the Montgomery Public Schools have already renamed those schools, and Monday it came out what those schools' new mascots are going to be. No more generals and no more volunteers in Montgomery, Alabama. What in the world are they going to go with? I think I've got the information here. And I'll pass that on as we will continue on with more of the news headlines across the southeast. When we come up from the break here after the Y'all Show, when we come back, we've got a local sports report for the south. Our southern sports update for this Tuesday will be jumping all over. And we'll also have, before the hour is up, a Southern political report. I'm going to tell you about Tim Scott texting my ex-wife. Yeah, all that is ahead. You don't want to miss it. What in the world is he talking about? Is he talking about me? I'm not going to vote for that guy. We'll be right back. Torpedoes 
August has arrived. And here on the Y'all Show in our Southern Sports Update, I want to remind you that we're just days away from those Navy midshipmen kicking off in Dublin against Notre Dame. That is the very first college football game of the 2023 season. And the Middies and Irish will be doing such a thing on August 26th. Yes, it is officially August today. So happy August to you. And happy arrival of college football month. I am excited about that. And I will be even more excited if the Middies, and they've got a new coach this year. I need to pull this up because the longtime head coach of Navy, Ken Niamatololo, I said it, (laughs) y'all. I said his name right. That's not an easy name to say. The Hawaiian, who did a great job at Navy for a long time, he stepped down after this last season. I don't know. I don't think Navy had a winning season, and they just decided to make a change, and they did that. So Navy with a brand-new head coach in Brian Newberry. He comes over to Navy. He played for Baylor as a college football player. Played back in the early 1990s as a defensive back. And most recently had been at Navy as the defensive coordinator. And Newberry named the head coach back on December 19th. So congratulations to Newberry. The Newberry era at the United States Naval Academy again is going to start in Ireland, of all places, where Navy and Notre Dame get together. These are the, for a long time, these were the longest, uh, let me get this right. Until COVID, this was the longest played rivalry of schools, perhaps that weren't in the same conference. It, it, it really is a, a rivalry, although Notre Dame had won like the last 40 consecutive games in this thing until about five years ago the middies were able to pull out a victory over the irish but nbc is going to have this one on saturday august 26 i know it's over three weeks away but i'm just excited to tell you that we've reached the month of august and you've got college football coming up that's the first game of the year saturday august 26 on that same saturday it's the first game ever for the game cox as a fbs member as there will be a CUSA battle between the brand new CUSA member Jacksonville State Gamecocks. Good old Randy Owens on the mater of the group Alabama. Those Gamecocks there at Burgess Snowfield, home of Rick and Bubba, as in Burgess, Big Bubba Burgess. I don't think the field's named after him. <laughs> but in Jacksonville, Alabama, and East Alabama, on the first Saturday of football on that 26th day of this month, Jacksonville State's got the Miners of UTEP coming in for a game. And then in the evening hours on that first college football Saturday, it's going to be UMass and New Mexico State, which you've always wanted. ESPN's going to have that one from Aggie Memorial Stadium in Las Cruces. Also, at that same time kicking off, the Bobcats of Ohio and San Diego State from Snapdragon Stadium 
out in San Diego. That's the new home of the Aztecs. Excited about that. There's actually going to be an SEC team in action on that first college football Saturday. Vanderbilt's going to be at First Bank Stadium in Nashville taking on the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors. And then other games on that opening day, San Jose State will be taking on Lincoln Riley and the USC Trojans from the Coliseum. And also on that first day of football, Louisiana Tech in Rusted is going to have the Panthers of Florida International coming over to North Louisiana for a game. And that's 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 a lot of football for August 26th. Keep that in mind. August 26th. Almost every other team gets going the following weekend. Thursday, August 31st, is going to have a bunch of games that will be going down in college football. But that, that's Labor Day weekend. This is the weekend I just walked through all these games. is actually the weekend before Labor Day. So plenty of fun. And again, it all gets going with Navy and Notre Dame kicking off. And that game kicks off, it looks like at 2.30 Eastern, 1.30 Central. It's going to be prime time over in Dublin with this battle for the shillelagh in Ireland between the Irish and the middies of the United States Naval Academy and their brand new coach, Brian Newberry. Good luck, coach. Good luck, midshipman. One other college football-related story to pass on. According to sources, the Big 12 is looking to add one more school to get to 14 playing members. Now, this is after Colorado has jumped ship from the Pac-12 to the Big 12. They'll officially become a Big 12 member next summer and be ready to play in the 2024-25 athletic year. Now, who is the Big 12 going to be courting to get to that 14th member in the upcoming year? Hmm. Who would you add? Remember, the Big 12 this year is going to have UC Cincinnati, UH as in Houston, BYU, and UCF as brand new members. Texas and Oklahoma are going to be in the conference this year, but then they're leaving after this year. And there's going to be an opportunity for perhaps another team to join Colorado in the upcoming year, but they better hurry up and figure it out. Now, one source told ESPN that UConn and Gonzaga have been talked about as potential new members. Gonzaga doesn't play football. UConn does. And they're trying to strengthen this conference from a basketball standpoint in addition to football. Now, I will tell you that over the weekend I was kind of following this story and it was a point made that the Big 12 is the best college basketball conference in the country. Is that really true? I think the Big East might have something to say about it, including that aforementioned UConn Husky program, which is your current national champion of college basketball. So a lot of people are looking toward Arizona. Are the Wildcats going to get out of Tucson and join the Big 12, leaving the Pac-12? I don't think Arizona's going to go unless Arizona State joins them. And then there's the whole possibility of the Four Corners schools signing up with the Big 12. That would be Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah holding hands with Colorado to join up in the upcoming year. And what that would mean is 
you've got those schools plus BYU is already a new member this year. So everything that matters outside of California would then be part of the Big 12. All the schools that matter, in my opinion. BYU is a powerful school. They're going to be in the Big 12 here this football season. Colorado hasn't been that important, but they're getting important thanks to prime time. And they're going to be in the Big 12. So, yeah, I I think if the Big 12 smart, they're already courting those other four, those other three teams to help pull off the whole four corners aspect, the four corners, which is essentially the intersection of Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. Sorry, Lobos and Aggies of New Mexico State. I don't think you're getting a Big 12 invite. Not quite yet. But uh, yeah, I look for it. That's that's one of the fun things of college football and college sports expanding is all the possibilities. What's going to happen? Who's on first? And we'll keep you posted right here at the Y'all Show because I love conference realignment. It's fascinating at all levels. We got a lot of FCS teams that have switched conferences here in the last year or two. When we come back on the Y'all Show, we're going to switch things up and talk about Southern politics. That is ahead as the Y'all Show Tuesday edition continues. back on the y'all show on this tuesday edition and a little time for southern politics conversation to wrap up our one of the show that is all southern and a big name from monday's headlines devin archer devin archer was on capitol hill monday as he told the house oversight committee that his former business partner partner in hunter biden was selling the illusion that he could get access to his daddy, Papa Joe, Joe Biden, back when he was vice president, and I guess right after he was out of office as well. Now, they had a closed-door interview, the congressman with Devin Archer on Monday, but we're getting some details out of that thing, and one thing we're learning is that Dan Goldman, a Democrat on the committee, Evidently, he sat through a portion of Archer's interview and when questioned by Republicans said that there was a lack of evidence connecting the president to his son's foreign dealings. Come on, man. Come on, Oscar Goldman. I mean, Dan Goldman. What's going on with you? Of course, I was watching an interview 
Monday evening with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she wanted to point out that Dan Goldman was on that committee to impeach the Trump impeachment hoax number one. He was a big part of that as a juror, I guess is their term for that. And then uh, impeachment manager. That's right. That's the term. You know, we, we started having impeachments like every five weeks, it looks like, in the old Congress with Trump in office. But Goldman, according to Marjorie Taylor Greene, is a Levi Strauss heir. He's a trust fund baby. I don't know what that's got to do with Hunter Biden, but MTG made sure to point that out in her interview on Monday evening. Got to got to listen to Marjorie Greene when she speaks. People listen, kind of like E.F. Hutton. But Devin Archer making headlines when he spoke to the House Oversight Committee Monday on Capitol Hill. We'll find out if this really makes a difference. I doubt it. Because, as I've said before, it looks like when Republicans have the opportunity to get you and get you good, like Benghazi, remember all that drama? And then you got people like Mr. Wildhead himself, Trey Gowdy, that was involved in that, dropping the ball, and that ended up being a nothing burger. Hmm. Something just tells me this is going to happen with Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. No matter what the goods are, it won't make a daggum difference. Let's look at the latest polling. According to Real Clear Politics, the national Real Clear Politics poll averages on the Republican side from this website, Trump 54, DeSantis 18, Ramaswamy 4.9, Mike Pence 4.3. Trump with a commanding 36-point lead over Ron DeSantis in the Real Clear Politics national average. In Iowa, he enjoys a 50-17 to 17 lead over DeSantis. In New Hampshire, Trump's got a 41-17 lead over DeSantis. Trump's kicking butt and taking names. And then when you compare Trump and Biden going head-to-head, according to the general election matchup from Real Clear Politics, they're both right at 44 44. In fact, one thing, according to the general election matchup, Biden would lead DeSantis in a head-to-head matchup, 44 to 42. Trump would best Kamala Harris, 46-42, according to Real Clear Politics. And if you looked only at Democrats, Biden with a 63 to 13 polling average lead over Robert Kennedy Jr., I'm starting to see a turn. We also, Monday, found out that one of the packs behind Ron DeSantis is already having people pull out. The, uh, Ed Rollins, I believe is his name, he was a part of the Ron DeSantis effort, and he has now pulled out of that, and he, he's even saying that Trump's already got it locked up, the nomination. And I'm starting to see and hear a lot more about Trump he already has a Republican thing taken care of. I believe it. I, I, I don't see how anybody can over, overcome these numbers. The only reason Trump could not win this thing is if he were, if he were forbidden from getting it, as in in jail and somebody coming out saying 
you can't run, sir, because a judge has ruled that you can't run. One guy running for office is Tim Scott, the South Carolina senator. And Tim Scott, according to one article at townhall.com, Kurt Schlichter has written an article called, Tim Scott is too soft to be our nominee. There's some truth to that. Now, let me get personal for a moment with Senator Scott. He's trying to get people to vote for him. He's trying to get people to support his effort. Well, guess what? Senator, you're not going to get a lot of um, support when you're sending my ex-wife text messages wanting her to give money to your campaign. And that's what happened over the weekend. And Tim Scott has the unfortunate distinction of now being the second politician to ask my ex-wife for money. The other was Stacey Abrams. I have no idea how they even have her number. We've been divorced seven years, and they're texting with my name as the text went out to my ex over the weekend. John, it's Tim Scott. This isn't easy. I hate to ask. My team says I need 11 more donors to reach my goal and restore faith in America. This could totally be spam. I understand that. It came from a 843 area code, which is Charleston, South Carolina. It might, that might be Tim Scott's cell phone number calling my ex-wife wanting money. I don't know if she gave or not. Honey, honey, can I call her? My, can I call my ex-wife, honey? Um, don't don't worry about it. One story that broke on Monday, the U.S. Senator, the junior senator out of Alabama, Katie Britt, in the news, she had some numbness in her face, and she's getting some medical attention. She's around 40 years old, married to a former Alabama football player, Katie Britt. We wish her well again. I think everything's fine with her, but, uh, yes, she's in the news because of some numbness that she felt in her face, and she's going to have to get help with that. Katie Britt, we wish her well. And lastly, as we wrap up our headlines today, Mississippi's got a big election next week. They're voting for governor and lieutenant governor. We'll keep you posted on all of the goings on. This is the Y'all Show. We will be back with more in hour two. two on this tuesday august 1st hello and welcome to a brand new month of our southern conversation the general of all things southern that would be yours truly john rawl i am with y'all.com the south's homepage, and it's great to have you back here for another hour we got a busy hour too with more headlines to get to you and then we're going to talk books we're going to let you know the latest New York Times bestsellers, but also 
We're going to hear from a best-selling author in Christy Woodson Harvey. She's a North Carolina-based penman, and she has penned the book The Summer of Songbirds. And we're going to go in and hear an interview that she recently did about her book. All that's coming up in this second hour of today's Y'all Show. Plus, we've got more entertainment news to pass along. We've got information about the death of Pee Wee Herman's Paul Rubens. His death announced on Monday. That plus some feel-good news from the Grand Ole Opry as Tennessee native Craig Morgan owns the stage of the Mother Church of Country Music, mind you. At nearly 60 years old, Craig Morgan held his hand up this past weekend and swore an oath of allegiance to the United States of America as he re-enlisted into the U.S. Army Reserves. And we'll discuss that. I, I didn't know you could do that, and he did it. And I think a lot of this is because of the tremendous reduction of people wanting to be in the armed forces right now. They've changed some stuff up. He's a prior enlisted guy, a very meritorious record Craig Morgan has serving in the U.S. military. I know at one time he was in, I think, the 101st Airborne as an active duty soldier. We have info on that and other entertainment headlines that we'll be passing along here in the second hour of the Y'all Show. If you would like to drop us an email, boy, oh boy, we would love to hear from you. You can drop that email anytime at mail, M-A-I-L, mail at Y-A-L-L dot com. Pretty dang easy to reach out to us. We, we want to hear from you, so please feel free to tell us all about that. Let's pick up our news headlines for this second hour, and I'm actually going to pick it up with a story that I was running out of time and didn't get the full report across to you at the end of hour one. This is a political story, but it's actually something newsworthy today to tell you about. The junior senator of Alabama is Katie Britt. She's 41 years old, and she ended up having to return home from the hospital after going to the hospital after a non-life-threatening condition that caused sudden numbness in her face. She suddenly experienced the numbness last weekend while in Montgomery and had to be admitted to the hospital in Montgomery, Alabama for observation. Doctors determined that the 41-year-old's symptoms were a result of a swelling of a facial nerve, most likely caused by a post-viral infection. And Britt, in a statement, saying that my condition is not life-threatening and recovery could take several weeks I am grateful for the medical professionals providing excellent care, and my family and I are deeply grateful for your prayers. A specialist from UAB evaluated her in an outpatient setting and concurred in a treatment plan. Congress right now is on a five-week recess, so she's in Montgomery getting treatment. Katie Britt who measures about, I think she's about five feet tall. I'm not, I'm not joking. I don't have her exact height. I bring that up because her husband, Wesley, a former Bama football player, he's about 6'7". He's a giant. 
And if you've ever seen these two, and he, he played in the NFL briefly too, if you ever see these two side by side, the senator and her football playing husband, <laughs> it's it's quite a quite a quite a photo. But we wish her well, Katie Britt, the new U.S. senator from the state of Alabama, junior to Tommy Tuberville in the halls of Congress, and she's going to be recovering now for several weeks over this non-life-threatening condition that's causing a sudden numbness in her face. We wish her all the best. Okay, other headlines to pass along here across the southeast today. A scary day and a scary scene in Memphis on Monday around lunchtime as at a Jewish school there in Memphis, police ended up shooting a gunman who had opened fire outside this school and according to police it thwarted a potential mass shooting at the Margolin Hebrew Academy and the suspect reportedly shot his gun outside of the school police receiving a report that an armed male fired his gun around 12.20 on Monday and then the suspect left the scene after failing to get inside the school according to the Memphis Police Assistant Chief Don Crow no one injured at the scene and he credits the school with a great safety procedure and a process in place that avoided anyone being harmed or injured at the scene now later MPD announcing that their officers shot and detained the gunman who had attempted to enter the Jewish school Monday afternoon are they already in school like for the I don't know what grades this school is technically called the Margolin Hebrew Academy Finestone Yeshiva of the South is what the sign reads. Sorry, I was trying to zoom in on this thing. And I don't know what grades this school serves. But this would have been the last day of July when this incident happened. Now the congressman from memphis is steve cohen and according to cohen i don't know if this was responsible of him to do or not but in a press release the memphis congressman said we have recently learned that the shooter at the margolin hebrew academy was himself jewish and a former student at the school i am pleased the academy had effective security and the police acted quickly to protect students the suspect left the scene in a ram pickup truck with California tags and was later spotted by authorities. Police stopped in the car and the suspect got out holding a handgun and a police officer shot the suspect. He was transported to a Memphis hospital in critical condition. A developing story, but the good news is the school was fine and a potential mass shooting perhaps thwarted Monday in Memphis, Tennessee. President Biden, his name is not exactly the most loved name in Alabama today, as the Biden administration is going to keep Space Command in Colorado. This was a Trump decision to move it to Huntsville, where Marshall Space Flight Center is at Redstone Arsenal in North Alabama. But President Biden has now decided to keep U.S. Space Command its headquarters in Colorado. The choice to keep it there ended months of 
deliberations. But some Alabamians are not giving up so easy. They're going to keep fighting. The Pentagon press secretary is Brigadier General Pat Ryder, and General Ryder said the decision was based on objective and deliberate process informed by data and analysis. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin supported the president's decision. But Mike Rogers, a congressman from Alabama, says the fight is far from over, and he's chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. I wonder, I wonder if politics really does have a big part in this decision. The lady I was just talking about, the senator that's got the facial condition today, Katie Britt, the U.S. senator from Alabama, said it was irresponsible for Biden to, quote, yank a military decision out of the Air Force's hands in the name of partisan politics. She said an Air Force evaluation of the potential locations ranked Huntsville first and added that the decision should have remained in the Air Force's purview. Big-time money involved in this. Huntsville, did you realize, and I didn't know this until the other day when we reported on this, Huntsville is Alabama's largest city. It sure is. And surprisingly, I think Montgomery might be its second largest city. And then you got Mobile and Birmingham. I, I think I got the order right. But I know that the county seat of Madison County, Alabama, is your largest city in Alabama. Salute. Other headlines as we continue on on this Tuesday Y'all Show. Teamsters are saying that trucking giant Yellow Corp is going to stop operations as they filed for bankruptcy. This is a Nashville-based trucking company, and they specialize in LTL, the largest less-than-truckload carrier. They're one of the nation's largest LTL carrier. And this is a 99-year-old company and 30,000 jobs affected by the decision for the yellow corp. You've seen their, not yellow, but their trucks are kind of a Tennessee orange looking thing out there on the highways. Big old words, yellow, yellow freight. And the company shutting down and headed for bankruptcy, according to Teamsters, the Nashville-based company. Perhaps they can find a way to turn it around because, man, we need all the truckers out there we could possibly stand. Hopefully those truckers were getting paid all along. We sure hope so. Let's go back to Alabama for another story for a moment. As wokeness has taken over Montgomery Public Schools in Alabama, they have decided to name a couple of schools after other people besides Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. Those were the two high schools that were probably the most prominent schools in Montgomery, Alabama for generations. And they recently named new names for Robert E. Lee High School and Jefferson Davis High School in Alabama. As you're going to have in Montgomery, Alabama, J.A.G. High School and Dr. Percy L. Julian High School. 
the story this week is that these schools are also going to have new nicknames for their athletic teams. Percy Julian High School, named for a Montgomery-born black chemist. They're going to have a new mascot instead of being the Robert E. Lee High School, which is what they were, the generals, the R.E. Lee generals. Percy Julian High School is going to be a phoenix. Woo! Go Phoenix! A Percy Julian High School. Yeehaw! And then the other high school in Montgomery is named J.A.G. High School, and that's for three different black leaders, Judge Frank Johnson, Ralph Abernathy, and Reverend Robert Greats. J for Johnson, A for Abernathy, G for Greats. And JAG High School is going to be called not for Jefferson Davis and the Volunteers, but um, that school's now going to be called the JAG Jaguars. Jag Jag. The Jag Jaguars. That actually is not a bad option if you're going to change it. But I still like the Jefferson Davis Volunteers better. Hmm. But you can't have that. Not even at the old capital city of the Confederacy, Montgomery. Robert E. Lee opened in Montgomery in 1955. Jefferson Davis opened up in the mid-1960s. Both schools today are predominantly black schools. According to Montgomery's own Southern Poverty Law Center, at least 200 schools across Dixie were named for Confederate leaders as of 2021. I'd love to see that number grow to like 500. The Southern Poverty Law Center counted 24 schools in Alabama that had Confederate leaders as part of their name. Most of those were named for current counties and cities. At least three schools named for Robert E. Lee in Alabama. One of those, I know for a long time, there was a very prominent school in Huntsville named Lee High School. I wonder if it's still called that. Let me pull up Huntsville, Alabama, and see if... And they were the generals, by the way. I remember they're going in that school 20-something years ago, and their logo was the logo of a five-star general, also the logo of the New Jersey generals of the USFL. And I remember they had, like, little pictures inside that five-star and it had other generals, and one of those was Colin Powell. Another one was Douglas MacArthur. And honestly, I can't remember if Robert E. Lee was one of them. Although, in the school office, they did have a portrait of Robert E. Lee in Lee High School in Huntsville, Alabama. That, that was pretty impressive. I wonder if that portrait is still there. And yes, this, this is dumb. Okay, I pulled up Lee High School in Huntsville. And yes, it's still called Lee High School, but it says, according to Wikipedia, Lee High School, named for the Lee Highway that ran in front of the old school location. And that highway, according to this entry, says, was named after Confederate and Union General Robert E. Lee. 
<laughs> that's dumb. Robert E. Lee was not a Union general, for goodness sakes. I don't, I don't know where that came from. It says here the school's mascot is now a five-star general, and for many years a painting of Robert E. Lee mounted on his horse and holding the Confederate flag was on the gymnasium wall. That's not the one I saw. I, I saw the one in the school office when I was there in Huntsville many, many, many years ago. But in the current century, it was in the twentieth. It was in the twenty-first century that I saw that thing. But yeah, it is good to know that in Huntsville there's still a Lee High School, and they have a new location. I didn't realize they had moved out of the old location, and they've got a new address in uh, in the Rocket City. I I don't have that address. Oh, oh, here it is. 2500 Meridian Street is where you can go check out Lee High School if you're ever touring Huntsville. Maybe you, you get tired of seeing the Space and Rocket Center and you want to go do something different. Hey, check out the new Lee High School. Go Generals. Go go five-star Generals. <laughs> All right, one more headline here today. This is a sad story coming out of Georgia, but it's a story relevant to the entire South. In fact, in hour one, I told you how it appears that a police officer in Cheatham County, Tennessee, took her own life over the weekend. And at least that's what, reading through the tea leaves, it appears happened in Cheatham County with a sheriff's deputy there. A story out from Atlanta, one in ten Georgia students have seriously considered suicide and I bet you that's the same amount across the southeast, across the country. In a video provided to news outlets, a 10-year-old asked the camera, what's wrong with me? You don't know how it feels. The Department of Education surveys 6th to 12th to graders as part of a health analysis Included in that survey are questions about a student's relationship with suicidal ideation. And of the more than 400,000 6th and 12th graders surveyed, I think in the state of Georgia, more than 1 in 10 said that they had seriously considered attempting suicide. 1 in 20 said they had attempted to take their life. Gosh. So... 5% of kids who are just starting their lives had tried to take their own life. Many Georgia school districts partner with local mental health providers that allow clinicians to see students with mental health needs on campus during school days. And again, this number, this alarming statistic, likely the same in every one of our states in the entire country. But Gosh, one in 10 kids in Georgia saying they have seriously considered taking their own life. Tough news to tell you about on this Tuesday Y'all Show. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to switch over and tell you about the best-selling books that are out there right now. And packaged in that report of books is an interview with Christy Woodson Harvey. She's got the book out called The Summer of Songbirds. And I'm going to tell you all about this Salisbury, North Carolina native 
and you're going to hear an interview she recently did. So we'll have books aplenty to talk about before the hour's up. We've got our entertainment headlines of the day that we'll be sharing with you. So stay right here. More of the Y'all Show powered by the South's homepage, y'all.com, is coming up. Shed this one out skin so thick and learn to fly. But I came home to face your eyes and steel. If looks could kill, I would be gone today. There's a fire that's burning in your eyes, not in your heart. And I can't And I don't like the way I make you feel If looks could kill I would be long since gone And if looks could kill Then I'd be pushing up your daisy If looks could kill Sounds from Rodney Crowell on the Y'all Show on this Tuesday. Hey, we want to tell you about books. We love our music, but man, we like our books. And we've got the New York Times bestsellers list right now that we're going to share with you. And and in a few seconds, we're going to let you hear from a best-selling author out of North Carolina. So stay tuned for info coming from Christy Woodson Harvey and the books that she's penned. We'll bra- we'll brag on that lady. In a second, but let me tell you who's atop the NYT bestsellers list right now in the combined print and ebook fiction category. Daniel Silva's The Collector. It's brand new and it's number one in the fiction category this week. The Collector is the 23rd book in the Gabriel Allon series. Did you know that that series is now up to 23 books? The art restorer teams up with a thief to find a missing painting and works to prevent a conflict between Russia and the West. Daniel Silva's The Collector. It's number one in the fiction category of New York Times bestsellers list. I think I'm going to have to add that one to my list, y'all. I do believe. Okay, up next is Rebecca Yaros's Fourth Wing. This one's been out now three months on the chart Violet Sorengale is urged by the commanding general who also is her mother wow a little conflict of interest perhaps urged by her mother to become a candidate for the elite dragon riders fourth wing Rebecca Yaros it's number two on the combined print and ebook fiction category of the New York Times bestsellers list Colleen Hoover her book has been out about a month now too late Dangers develop when a drug trafficker becomes obsessed with a woman who has a mutual attraction to a DEA agent. Too late, Colleen Hoover. It is on the list, y'all. And it comes in at number three. 
Also in the fiction category, Colleen Hoover's other book that's been out over two years now, It Ends With Us, A Battered Wife Raised in a Violent Home Attempts to Halt the Cycle of Abuse. How would you like to be Colleen Hoover and have two of your books in the top five of the New York Times bestsellers list right now at number three and four, respectively, in the fiction category? Not a bad deal. I think she's uh, sitting at home counting her money right now. And lastly, this one's been out about a half a year or so. Bonnie Garmus's Lessons in Chemistry is at number five on the fiction list. A scientist and single mother living in California in the 1960s becomes a star on a TV cooking show. Lessons in Chemistry, Bonnie Garmus, it's number five in the combined print and ebook fiction category. Now to nonfiction. And in nonfiction, we got a book about. Robert Oppenheimer atop the nonfiction category. Gee, I wonder how that could have happened. Of course, there's a movie called Oppenheimer that's, I think, number two at the box office right now after being out two weeks. But the book at number one in the nonfiction category, the New York Times bestsellers, is American Prometheus. Or is that Prometheus? That's a, what the heck does that word mean, y'all? I'm showing my ignorance. I got a word that stumped me. Prometheus. I'm going to get it right. Prometheus, I think is how you say it. A demigod, one of the titans who was worshipped by the craftsmen. When Zeus hid fire from men, Prometheus stole it by trickery and returned it to earth. As punishment, Zeus chained him to a rock where an eagle fed each day on his liver which grew again each night he was rescued by hercules okay no wonder i didn't know that me and the mythology of greek greece don't really hang out too much so therefore i was stumped by the title of this new book by kai bird and martin sherwin american prometheus is a biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, winner of the Pulitzer Prize in 2006 and an inspiration for the film Oppenheimer. So this this book's been out a long time. It just so happened to be the inspiration behind the new movie. Therefore, this book skyrockets back on the chart and shows up now for the third week on the New York Times combined print and ebook fiction, rather nonfiction category. And it's number one. So a nice payday coming for authors Bird and Sherwin. Number two, this one's been out nearly two years on the chart. David Gron's Killers of the Flower Moon, the story of a murder spree in 1920s Oklahoma that targeted Osage Indians whose lands contained oil. That one is number two. Number three, this is a brand new book. It's a Jackie O book. It is by J. Randy Terraborelli. It's called Jackie. And Jackie is number three, a biography of the former first lady, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. I wonder who J. Randy Taraborelli is, author of this book. Maybe I should zoom in on the title because it says something there. Because, I mean, virtually anybody could write a Jackie O. biography if they wanted to. New York Times bestselling author of Jackie Janet and Lee looks like so this 
this author has evidently written another Jackie O book in the past, therefore that's why they're way up there on the chart this week. Number four on the nonfiction category list from the New York Times, Peter Adias and Bill Gilford's Outlive, a look at a recent scientific research on aging and longevity. That would make for a nice airplane read, full show. And lastly, David Gron's got another book that still is on the bestsellers list. It's The Wager, and it checks in at number five this week, The Wager. The survivors of a shipwrecked British vessel on a secret mission during an imperial war with Spain have different accounts of events. So Gron's got two books in the top five of the nonfiction of the New York Times bestsellers. And then Colleen Hoover has two books, Too Late and It Ends With Us, two books of her own and the top five of the fiction category of the New York Times bestsellers list. I'd say that's pretty good. That is pretty dang good. Now, y'all, let me tell you about Christy Woodson Harvey and her New York Times bestselling book, The Summer of Songbirds. As this book, equal parts moving and nostalgic, her latest novel is a story of four friends who unite to save a summer camp and find out much more about friendship, love, and their own lives in the process. And this book was listed by Southern Living as one of its Beach Reads Perfect for Summer 2023. This is a Salisbury, North Carolina native that has penned this book. And we've got an interview that we're going to go to in just a second and hear all about this author who got her undergrad degree at UNC, Chapel Hill. And she, again, penned The Summer of Songbirds. Let's go in and listen to this Carolina author, Christy Woodson Harvey talk about summer camp and more because her book, The Summer of Songbirds, is all about that special time of year in a child's life if they're able to go to a summer camp. And hopefully you got a chance to go growing up. I did. I got to go to the church-type camps. I got to go to Boy Scout camp. Hmm. I got to go to band camp. That wasn't quite as fun because we didn't stay overnight for that. And Good Lord, we had to swallow gnats every time we tried to play a musical instrument. Okay, that's enough. TMI. <laughs> I got a gnat flying up my nose right now, y'all. Okay, here is that North Carolina author, Christy Woodson Harvey, The Summer of Songbirds, her latest book. And here's an interview that she recently did on the YouTube channel that goes and does great interviews with authors. And we're going to let you hear that right now, courtesy of Friends in Fiction on YouTube. Well, I mean, obviously I loved summer camp and like had a great experience there and went, you know, my whole life. I went to, I think I mentioned this, but I went to Camp Hollymont in the North Carolina mountains. So I had a little bit of a different summer camp experience than what I describe here, but a lot of my summer camp experience um, influenced this book, like down to the songbirds. We were all named after all the cabins were named like the hummingbirds, the blue jays, you know, and on and on. So um, there are a lot of pieces of this camp, like the blob and like just all of these things that I have from from my memories as a camper. Um, but actually, I really think that the most nostalgic place for me in my childhood was um, we used to go on these family beach trips every summer. My grandparents would take all like 24 of us. My mom has three sisters and um, I have a lot of cousins and we would spend a week together um, in, the, in a beach house, just like hanging out and catching ghost crabs at night and eating too much candy and 
um, they were like the best memories of my whole life. So I think that's what I think of when I think of those like really special childhood days. All right. That is author Christy Woodson Harvey, who grew up in North Carolina, went to school in North Carolina, and has quite the writing career going. And her latest book, the novel, The Summer of Songbirds, where she goes back to her childhood for inspiration and love the fact that she spent her summers both in the mountains, as we just heard there, going into the North Carolina mountains for some fun. And then she and her gigantic family, as she explained, go into a beach house and her grandparents would have all the cousins and her cousins over and have a great time going out catching crabs and things like that on the probably Carolina beach. I I don't know exactly where she would have gone as a child in that part of the South, but um, what what a great career she's got going. She studied journalism, by the way, at UNC and has taken that journalism career into a great novel career, and it was a novel idea to get into that, Christy Woodson Harvey. And we congratulate her on her success, and that, my friends, will wrap up our Southern Book Report here for this week of the Y'all Show. Go get you a good book for the beach chair before the summer comes to an end. Now, for a lot of you, summer still is going to keep going on. Kids are going back to school any day now if they haven't gone back already. But for some of you, the the summertime still goes on beyond at least Labor Day. So, hey, enjoy books like Christie's The Summer of Songbird if you have that opportunity. When we come back, we're going to keep the fun going. We've got a Southern Entertainment Report passed along more on the death of Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, and news out of Nashville that we'll be sharing some incredible news for Craig Morgan, country music star, Grand Ole Opry star. All that is ahead as part of our entertainment headlines, and that is coming up next, y'all. Take your Johnson, your Mercury, or your Evan Rudy fired up. Beat us out at party cold. Come on in, the water's fine. Just dive on over and toss us a line. Fast trackers, bayliners, and a party barge. Stumped together like a floating trailer park. Anchored out and getting loud all summer long. Torches, regular Joes, rocking the boat, that's us, the Redneck Yacht Club. It's about the only yacht club I would be part of, the Redneck Yacht Club from a Tennessee native there that spent a lot of time on the waterways of that state. And, of course, sadly, his son killed on the Tennessee River several years ago, Craig Morgan. We've got Craig Morgan news to pass along in just a second, some really unbelievable news frankly involving craig morgan 
and I still love that song. The only country music song I think that's ever written that includes the words or, or the acronym SPF. <laughs> he just sang about it there. As, uh, he talked about splashing some SPF on to protect him when he's out there on that party barge. Oh, yeah, Craig Morgan news coming up in just a second. But let's first start off with the news that broke on Monday. The death of Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman's dying of cancer at the age of 70. And we bring his death up because Paul, although born in New York, grew up in Sarasota, Florida. As his family had there in Sarasota a business. I think they owned a lamp store. And he had a couple of siblings who, one was a dog trainer and one an attorney that's with the ACLU in Tennessee, actually. Didn't know that. But yeah, Paul Rubens, who grew up in Sarasota, went to Sarasota High School before getting into acting, and he passed away on Sunday in L.A. at the age of 70 after a multi-year battle with cancer, best known for his 1980s portrayal of Pee Wee Hermans. Now, back in Sarasota was where Paul Rubens was when he got busted in 1991 in a theater as he was caught with indecent exposure. I remember that that happened in Florida, but I did not realize that it was at the adult theater in Sarasota that he was arrested in 1991 for the indecent exposure, and that really changed his career at that point. And I would say he became the butt of a lot of jokes. But he still stayed active in acting and still was part of a lot of movies and video games and more up until the last few years when he had a real real tough battle with cancer that unfortunately he lost this week. Paul Rubens, born Paul Rubenfeld, the Sarasota, Florida native, dying this week. Matthew McConaughey has a suggestion for America's conversation about gun safety. Story posted at Marianne by Marion Garvey at CNN.com. The Texas native who was a visible and vocal advocate for the community in the aftermath of the Uvalde, Texas shooting in his hometown in Texas, by the way, Uvalde, Texas. Along with his wife, Camelia, they have launched the Green Lights Grant Initiative to help schools across the country assess funding to create safer learning environments. With an interview he did here in the last couple of days with ABC News, McConaughey said that my wife was out of the country. She heard about the news, immediately writes me and says, we got to go down there. She ended up cutting her trip short, flew in, we packed up and headed out to Uvalde, Texas, where Matthew McConaughey, the actor, is trying to do something to help out. McConaughey says he was told that three months after the Uvalde shooting, 12 schools in the area had applied for government funding, but none had been given any funding to help out with making their schools safer. McConaughey in this interview said, what are we doing? That's a 0% success rate. One way, one way too few applications. Number two, the 12 applications, we went zero for 12. He says the government admits that it shouldn't be this complicated. You got 14,000-something schools. This grant initiative is going to connect those districts to those billions of dollars that's there available and wants to be used to make our kids safe. 
McConaughey also said, I changed the word from gun control to gun responsibility. Again, McConaughey, this tragedy in Texas happened in his hometown of Uvalde. And he's not holding back, trying to make a difference in some way, shape, or form. Tim McGraw recently, you might have seen the Cardi B, I believe was the singer who had something thrown on her on stage and she threw her microphone back. Tim McGraw's out saying that the experience of having things thrown on stage toward him is, he says it's terrible. I mean, you could really injure somebody, Tim McGraw says. Tim McGraw's standing room only tour is going to hit 30 cities beginning in March. And there's a bunch of southern dates on the standing room only tour Tim McGraw has ready to go. Congratulations to Craig Morgan. We told you about the 59-year-old Kingston Springs, Tennessee native. Over the weekend on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry, he re-enlisted in the United States Army Reserve. At 59 years old, mind you, this is a guy who was in the Army. He spent 17 years in the Army and Army Reserve with the 101st and 82nd Airborne Divisions as a staff sergeant before really kicking off his country music career. And Craig Morgan has re-enlisted into the Army. What a great, great... I mean, it's it's the reserves, mind you. I didn't even know you could do that. So... What a way to do it, and what a what a way to do it. He did it on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry over the weekend. Pretty amazing for the Tennessee native. Also want to let you know that Tracy Lawrence, the country music crooner from Arkansas, has just completed his country music Mount Rushmore. That's right. He got a tattoo of his four favorite singers, and it's right there on his arm, and it's a thing of beauty if you like tattoos. Tracy Lawrence's Mount Rushmore of country music includes George Strait, George Jones, Keith Whitley, and Merle Haggard. And I'll have to be honest with you, Tracy, I'm not into tattoos, but looking at the photo of this thing, I am impressed. And that wraps up our entertainment headlines for Hour 2. Stay tuned. We got the Takapola Storyteller coming your way in Hour 3. here. The email address is M-A-I-L mail at Y-A-L-L dot com and that's how 24 hours a day you can drop me a, a nice note or even a hateful note. We'll take them either way. And you don't have to pay the 89 cents or whatever a stamp costs these days to reach us here at the Y'all Show. Talk with an accent on all things Southern. John Rawl, I am the general of all things Southern and I want to thank you for being a part of our final hour on this Tuesday, August 1st edition. Congratulations. We made it to August, y'all. All you Leos, stand up. I don't know if he's a Leo or not, but the Takapola Storyteller is going to be joining us here in the next segment. His name is Jerry Short, and we got watermelons on our mind. I'm going to be 
watermeloning it up big time this weekend at the Watermelon Carnival. More on that coming later this week. I can't talk about watermelons right now. We got to get through some headlines here in a second. I want to remind you before the hour's up, we also have a Southern Sports update that we'll be sharing with all y'all. So let's start off our news headlines for this final hour with some developing news out of Atlanta. And it looks like a journalist in Atlanta has now been subpoenaed as part of that grand jury probe of Trump and the election interference that Fonnie Willis has been looking at for a long, long time. So another person involved in a subpoena there in this case. This marks the third likely indictment that Trump's going to see of the four that we know about that he's being considered for. He's already been indicted twice, first for Stormy Daniels and the hush money, and then with the Mar-a-Lago's documents case. This thing in Atlanta is going to happen. He's going to be indicted there. And then he's still going to get indicted, I'm sure, for January 6th. Back in Washington, D.C., he'll be indicted for that. So he's going to have at least four indictments to deal with as he's out campaigning. The guy that is the runaway favorite for the Republican nominee for president in 2023. So, Mr. Trump, if you're listening, this is John. Thank you sir for giving me a a bit of your time let me tell you how you can fight this stuff sir let's just keep it real for a second mr trump so let's look at the hush money thing should that thing even be a real legal case should if his name weren't trump and if he weren't a former president would that even be a, a case I don't think it would be because a lot of the scholars said that was the weakest of all the four possible problems he's got. So let's throw that one out. That one shouldn't even be a factor. Then you got the Mar-a-Lago documents hiding affair. We go from one affair of Stormy to to the documents affair at Mar-a-Lago. Should that be a problem? Trump swears, he says over and over, that he had the right to have those documents. Those documents were within an area that Secret Service knew about. They weren't exactly hidden away. They were right there in plain view if you had access to them. I don't think he was really trying to hide anything, except he had them in Mar-a-Lago. There's, I'm sure part of Mr. Trump's defense is going to be he was doing what he thought he could do, that he was following the law. The law. And he often cites that um, governmental agency that has to deal with the records. So he's, he's going to make a case that he is as clean as the new fallen snow on the whole documents thing. I think he's going to be okay there. Now we move to Atlanta and the possible election interference and intimidation that is likely going to be leading to an indictment in Fulton County. We saw, as I just said today, the headline come across that a journalist has been subpoenaed in Atlanta for that case. This one reeks of politics in Atlanta. 
This one kind of like, although he hasn't, to my knowledge, been subpoenaed by Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York State. Remember, she ran part of her campaign was she's going to get Trump. She's going to do whatever it took to lock up Trump. And she's been trying. She really has. <laughs> and she might be successful. But she's going to ha- have to wait behind Fonny down in Fulton County. Fulton County, Fonny. And Fonny's going to have a lot to say about Trump's freedom because she's claiming that his, if, if indeed this indictment comes through, that his call to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, was indeed intimidation. I don't think it was. Again, similar to the document saying Trump, Trump, Trump knows that everything he does is either being recorded or videoed or both, recorded audio-wise or videoed or what, whatever the case may be. And so, yeah, he knew people would be on the phone. And in fact, the whole Georgia phone call happened after the Ukraine phone call that he ended up being impeached over as he said a perfect phone call well he's saying that his call to brad ravensburger was even more perfect than his call to vladimir Zelensky. the perfect phone call that led to an impeachment should never have happened a complete waste of time and money by your morons on the democratic side your shifty shifts and your I'm trying to think I don't think she was part of the original impeachment hoax but your Liz Cheney's I don't know if she how she voted on that first impeachment but we know she was a freaking manager of the impeachment for the second one and so many people out to get, get Trump but this Georgia thing looks like it's about to come down and Trump knew people would likely be recording it or being in on the call and he claims it was a perfect call and he has every right to believe that I still think it's going to be an indictment coming down this week but he should have a a great defense to fight off the stupidity of Fonnie Willis pushing this thing through again I think primarily for political reasons even from within Republican establishments in the state of Georgia. Remember, there still is something fishy about what happened back in 2018 when Brian Kemp, the governor, had to end up settling with some kind of lawsuit from Stacey Abrams where she never ceded the election to him that she was running for governor. And there was some kind of settlement and I don't know what if they sold their soul where's Charlie Daniels when you need him the devil went down to Georgia and Brian Kemp and some of these other people like Raffensperger had to have sold their soul where's Burt Jones when you need him Burt Jones was a so called I think he was a fake elector is the term but he's now your lieutenant governor of Georgia and he and Kemp aren't exactly on the same side when it comes to Trump and where's Bert when you need him? Bert. Bert needs to start talking about Trump and pushing for Trump in Georgia. Because he could be your next governor. The pride of Jackson, Georgia. Bert Jones. Then the final case is 
the January 6th little thing that's been in the news quite a bit. And um, look, Trump, there's no smoking gun on that. I know people went to Capitol Hill and acted like idiots, and we lost people like Babbitt was gunned down there. There's no excuse to break and enter the United States Capitol. And those people that did that have already been in jail for years. That's another case. That's a whole other thing to talk about. But to my knowledge, there's no smoking gun that says direct from Trump's orders. Here's what you're going to do, crowd. You're going to go up there. You're going to break into the Capitol, and you're going to stop the voting. Now, he said to something to the effect of raise hell, but that doesn't mean you have to break in and enter. In my world, and I don't want to put words in Trump's mouth from January 6th, but heck yeah, I was upset. I, I, I was upset with the election, and I was upset with the vote counting and more that happened in a lot of southern states. What are you going to do if you're going to if you're going to be upset about something? What what can you do? Either suck it up, which is what the other side wants you to do, or you can. In Trump's, you know, prophetic words, raise a little hell. And one way to raise hell is to go to Washington D.C. And a lot of people did. And a lot of people, hundreds of them, went into the Capitol. That is not a good thing but they did it but did they do it because Trump gave them a direct order to do it no absolutely not and that's going to ultimately play out so my whole point of getting into this spiel is that Trump despite all these indictments he's got a legitimate defense on all of them and I do believe he's going to be just fine when it's all said and done so Trumpers out there sit back and enjoy the the craziness because your guy is your by far leading Republican guy with a 30 to 40 point polling edge over Ron DeSantis right now and even a lot of people that are not wanting to see a Trump candidacy are bowing their head and saying this guy's got it this this is over Rick what is his name? Rick Wilson out of Tallahassee recently said the same thing. And he is a Trump derangement syndrome spokesperson. And he's saying it. So if he's saying it, yeah, I, I think Trump's got it. Unless the Fonnie Willis's of the world can find some judge out there to lock him up and keep him from running. Which would be a very dark day if that were to happen. Okay, one story to pass along that happened on Monday a Memphis Hebrew school, the Margolin Hebrew Academy, had a gunman who attended evidently that school as a youngster, showed up there and tried to get in with a gun. Ultimately, they were turned away. Memphis police ultimately shot and detained this gunman who's in critical condition at a Memphis hospital. This was a Jewish shooter who tried to get into a Jewish school in Memphis. Nobody was hurt at the school. Very, very positive news, but a potential mass shooting averted in the Bluff City of Memphis on Monday. And lastly, we will tell you that a story out of Georgia, one in ten students in that state have seriously considered suicide. As some data is just now coming out, and if it's 
unfortunate news coming out of Georgia like that, it's probably the same amount across the country. 10% of kids have seriously considered suicide. So please try to avoid that option, kids. Please don't even think about it. In fact, there's a number out there that you can call if you're a child and or an adult and you're thinking about suicide call or text 988 for the 988 suicide and crisis lifeline also you can go to the website 988lifeline.org there the suicide option is a horrible option and you don't want to do it so call or text 988 that will conclude our headlines for this final hour when we come back on y'all talk with an accent on all things southern our Takapola storyteller buddy Jerry Short's going to be along, and we've got watermelons to talk about, y'all. It's watermelon time across Dixie, and we're going to have some fun with Jerry, the Takapola storyteller Short, and that conversation is up next. Southern. It's Tuesday, and Tuesdays equals the Taka Pola Storyteller dropping by for conversations that cover the gamut. I'm talking modern-day politics we can talk about. We can talk about things from back in the 1950s. We can discuss sports and so much more when the Taka Pola Storyteller Jerry Short drops by. Ain't no telling what's going to happen. Jerry, how you doing? Good to see you. Oh, man, I tell you, I'm doing pretty good. It's summertime, and I'm thinking of all the good things that took place back in the summers that we did as kids, and brings me back to my youth a little bit. So, uh, Okay, you just can't leave it out here dangling. Well, I got a few things that uh, I can throw at you about my youth. and Well, uh, we've heard a lot about your youth, but you've still well, got more to oh, talk about. Oh, I got, uh, man, we did, it wasn't nothing we didn't do. We did. If it could be done, we did it. So, is this common for everybody that grew up in the fifties? Or just well, you know, I was probably uh, pretty good at being in the leader of a bunch, somewhat, but not necessarily, not necessarily the general. But Were you the spanky or alfalfa? Oh, uh, I would. Pro- I, I would have probably been. Uh, well, if you want to say buckwick, I might have been buckwick. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, boy, this time of the year, I'm thinking about it because. You know, this is watermelon time, getting close, and I noticed watermelon on the vine is looking good. So, we had this stuff. So, that, watermelons show uh, up in late summer. Yeah, like you know, it depends on when you plant them, obviously. You know, but some people want them to come off in August. You know, okay, because and last of July. We have you know? peaches around yeah, July Fourth. Yeah, yeah, 
So that's and, how that, and the fruit, yeah. the fruit of the South, yeah. that's how that works out? They used to, you know, it, it was a town not far from uh, where we are that uh, considered theirself before they put the reservoirs in as watermelon capital of the world because all that land they grew watermelons on. And when they put water on it, it stopped the watermelon growing. So back in the 30s, they had a watermelon carnival in this town. Okay. And they still have it, and they still call it a watermelon carnival. Hmm. But it's not really actually that many watermelon. I think it's someplace in Florida now that is billed as a watermelon capital of the world. But we, we would raid these, you know, everybody had watermelons. And, uh, in one, their gardens? Yeah. Well, a lot of people would grow them to sell, you know, back, back when I was a boy. Because they'd sell them at, at the farmer's market downtown and all around. And, you know, it might, might be a 20-acre uh, crop. It might be a 10-acre crop. But a lot of people have a lot of good watermelons. And we were bad at night, about, and it put scarecrows up. And But some of them had to get even more but, serious. But the farmers mean? Farmers. They, they put scarecrows up yeah. for what keep, Well, to keep uh, animals out there pecking, to keep the animals from pecking on the watermelons, you know. Crows are bad about that. Okay. And uh, so anyway, they'd put Scarecrow up, and that's reading, hence the name Scarecrow. But uh, we um, uh, we would go raid some of these uh, watermelon patches. But we were sitting around a swimming pool, the city swimming pool, on a table, and we all decided to go raid a watermelon crop. So we did. We For went what reason? To eat. But when you brought them, if everybody had a watermelon, when we jumped that barbed wire fence and got in the back of a pickup and headed back to, up to the park and sat by the pool, we'd just take your fist and bust that watermelon open and get you a handful of, of the heart of the watermelon. So you're talking about theft. I'm youngsters. talking about that's Yeah, but it was a game, really, to us. And the farmers didn't get that mad until later years. I know a couple of instances. I'm not going to talk about that now, but... I know one did pull a shotgun on somebody, <laughs> but uh, one farmer did. But any anyway, we'd go do that. Now they, they finally got a little bit tricky. They had a they had a uh, thing that you could get at the drugstore called crotonol. It was an X-lax. An x lax An x And they would put they would shoot it in a watermelon. I don't know if they'd use a syringe or how they'd do, but it would be in a watermelon. And they would mark they would mark their watermelons one through four or five in the field, and only one of those numbers would have the croton oil in it. So the farmer knew not to get picked number three, say, because it watermelon was ruined. But they only did this so people like they did you that would so, not steal. Well, when they stole, and if you got number three that had the croton oil in it, you would be exlaxed to pieces. So you didn't want to get that one. So it, it kept you on your toes trying to kind of like playing a game, trying to figure out which one would have the uh, croton oil in it. It's basically Russian roulette with yeah, a watermelon. with a watermelon. So we bring them back up to the park, and we sat around. and and But we had another situation going at the same time. In that situation, we'd tell everybody, some of us did, knew the trick. We'd, we'd tell everyone that uh, a new girl, a country girl, had moved in out in the country. And it, it was an old ship mansion was the name of the place. It had been a Civil War mansion. Looked like I've seen it in some William Faulkner pictures. It's up at Anchor Church. But uh, we'd, we'd set a candle or a lantern up in the window like somebody lived in it, and it was abandoned, been abandoned for years. And uh, we would uh, tell somebody, hey, you know, we ought to get in the cars and go up to the ship house. And if we'll go up to the ship house, 
that girl's daddy's gone on on Friday nights always, and she's there by herself. And uh, probably you know you can go take her out or something if you want to. So uh, so every now and then somebody would fall for that. It wouldn't know I hadn't heard about it. So we had this good friend of ours, and uh, we were eating watermelons and. Luckily, no one had number three or whatever number had chronol, <laughs> and we were putting a fist in it. Well, a couple of us slipped out, and you'd have a shotgun, and you'd go get inside the old ship house with a shotgun, and then you would uh, have uh, the other guys would bring the person there, you know. Well, when they'd come, you knew what was taking place, so he would lead the person down to the ship house, and uh, the ship was a name. It was a plantation owner's name. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, he got relatives in uh, Oxford as, uh, uh, I think one's an eye doctor. It's a ship family. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, we, uh, uh, we, we'd take them there and we'd say, now you got to knock on the porch. We'll just knock on the porch floor, and she'll open the door and come out. So we had somebody in, inside with that shotgun. And they would open, the, uh, would take his friend and three or four of us would walk up to the edge of the porch and knock on the door. And this one guy wouldn't know what was going to happen. So when he knocked on the door, he knocked on the porch, she had opened the door. But it wasn't a she, it was one of our guys that would come out with a double-barrel shotgun and shoot him. He'd shoot up in the air. And then one of us would take a fall like we'd been shot and killed <laughs> and, and fall off of the back of the porch. And the other guy would be so scared, everybody would take off to two or three, would take off running. Well, the other guy would be already sitting in the car, and he'd leave them. And he'd leave the one that would pull in the tri- uh, trick on, you know. And he'd take off, and we'd all go back to where we was eating watermelon. And, man, it was about five, six miles away or seven. And we were sitting up there eating, and it had been about an hour, and the boy hadn't showed up yet. And he hadn't showed up yet. And then we looked, and he'd come, and he'd been through the brambles and the bushes, and he ran all the way to New Orleans, it looked like. He was torn to pieces. He was sweating. He was screaming. And when he looked up and saw us, he said, You sorry bunch of so-and-sos. So you're talking about... We're what talking what about, age are we talking about here? We're talking high school. You know, it could have been anywhere from 10, 10th, 11th, 12th grade or something Y'all, y'all like needed that. some hobbies back then. We're talking with our Takapola storyteller, Jerry Short, as he's reliving these horrible, horrible tricks played well, on friends. Was, were these people friends? They were friends, yeah. And I thought I was going to lose this friend for good, but but it didn't work out that way, you know, for good. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, it started a fight. So really, well, uh, yeah. And he and he realized he had been had because the it, person he like thought got yeah, killed, yeah, yeah. shot, uh-huh. was right there. It was one of our best friends too, you know. Patch. Yeah, he was already he had out up there. You know, he went on ahead. And then the car left this boy up there by himself. But when he come through town, he uh, he saw the police. And the police had brought him on up to the park, and they parked up on the hill. And they let him come down there on us. I think they'd already told him the gig was up, you know. So they waited for the fight, and then they come down and separated our fight, the police did, the local police. And uh, then they got on us for pulling this prank, even though we were in a different county. It was a different county from the county where we were at the swimming pool. Yeah. But, um, you know, stuff like that, uh, we did that no, a that's, lot. That's terrible. No, but, no, but it, well, you just can't imagine how much fun that was. And it was good acting. You know, if you got shot really good and did a fall back off of that porch, 
that guy that didn't know the gig was up, he was gone through the woods, <laughs> gone, gone through the briars, and gone through the bush. But uh, we, we, you know, we'd do that, and uh, that was one. I'm, of I'm the glad things. kids these days now play video games. That's better than what you were doing back then. That guy could have had a heart attack. Well, he looked like he was on the verge of one. I'm telling you, he was really red. He was sweating, and he was really getting down in his tracks. But the police, I'm sure, had explained to him when he come through downtown running, and they put, they want to know what was wrong, <laughs> and they brought him up to the park, and then they hid behind the uh, dressing room at the swimming pool, and uh, let him come down there where we were on the tables eating watermelon. But uh, you know, I was telling you about that. Uh, started out about a watermelon situation too. You know, besides that, uh, one guy took it really serious. Had a had a nice crop of watermelons. And uh, he, You're he had about a farmer. Some, yeah, a farmer. He had some yellow meated watermelons, and we were always trying to get those yellow meated ones to yellow meated. Yeah, instead of red, and you know some of them are yellow, mm-hmm. and uh, those are those taste a little bit different. So we like those a lot too, and and they their their greenery is not the same, the striping's not the same, you know, on the watermelon. So we we would get those sometime too. So we was we was trying to get those. We knew a guy that had a patch of them, and we parked down the road and walked down to the fence. But when we did, this guy come across the fence and he put a shotgun in a friend of mine's face. You were there. Yeah, but I was already where I could run to the car, and left him there, and me and another guy took off, and it left him there with a shotgun in his face, and he had to get down on his knees and beg for forgiveness on trying to steal those watermelons. And, what time of day are we talking about? Oh, we're talking 8.30 at night. You know, we didn't have daylight savings. And, so there was a little bit of sunlight? Oh, no, not then. And it would get dark. So this uh, farmer basically was waiting for It'd get dark at 7 o'clock. He was probably. waiting for you? Yeah, he was sitting out out there because, uh, <laughs> you know, we weren't the only ones, I'm sure, that he hit his patch because he had a really good watermelon patch. So, you know, that was one of the things that we would do. What? And, uh, Idiots. But uh, I, I guess the deal was shooting you off the porch. With old Sal, we called her. You know, we'd tell the guy, old Sal, you know, her daddy's not there tonight. It's a good time to go see old Sal. And, uh, but you had to go through all that acting, you know, it was really good, so. Well, I'm sorry that it, uh, Hollywood did, did not come calling. Well, you know, they were close at the time. About the time they went on, I think they were filming home from the hills in Oxford with Robert Mitchell. But, uh, it's a Texas movie. But, uh, yeah, they was killing wild hogs, which I think it was worse to steal a watermelon than to kill a wild hog. Do but your other friends, can they sit here if they're still alive? Very few are still alive. Can they even recall this? Oh, or yeah. they deleted it from their well, hard, hard frame? You know, this is a, the sad part of this is it, it's a friend of mine that uh, got in the cop car and uh, came on up there. That, we, that particular one that we played it on, he was killed in a car accident when he was in college as a, as a sophomore mm. at Northwest Junior College. He was killed in a car wreck. And, uh, the one that you the, all the tricked that, that we night? We tricked that night, yeah. And he, he was really one of my best friends. Probably one, two, three best friends I had. You know, so, you know, it was a sad situation. But, you know, you know you, of course, you can't look in the future. You don't know what's going to happen down the road. And, uh, you know, those are things that we would do. And, which that traps up across. You familiar with kudzu? Oh, quite familiar. You know how kudzu's taking this country over, 
and it was starting to take the country over back then. People, they had planted it in the early 50s and late 40s. You had your choice of pine trees or kudzu. And a lot of farmers hated the pine trees because this country was native to hardwood species, mm-hmm. a few short-leaf pines. But we would set these booby traps of uh, kudzu, and then we would run around them and have somebody chasing us. We'd tell them we're uh, running after each other and playing, t- uh, playing uh, I guess you'd call it tag, at night. And but we'd go around, we'd know where these traps were. And underneath it, it washed out so much because after the Civil War, there was a lot of years during Reconstruction that farming, you know, wasn't any farming done on his land. Yeah. And the topsoil would wash away and wash down the river. So we'd set these booby traps, and somebody would be running, and they'd run right in, and they'd fall through that kudzu, and they'd get wrapped all up in kudzu, and they might fall 20 feet to the bottom of the gully. And they couldn't get out, and they'd be down in there with the bobcats and polecats and everything else. You know, and I always thought that was a good thing to do to people because we, we enjoyed doing, we enjoyed playing that little trick on them also. But, uh, and you, know, you just said polecat. That's skunk, right? Polecat would be a skunk, yes, sir. Sure we're... And a lot of them would be backed up in those gullies. You know, they'd usually have a cave up in those gullies. But I know the worst of the situation when I bought timber and land. I got underneath one, and I walked Tell up on Kudzu Gully. Oh, Kudzu Gully. I fell through myself. And it wasn't set up for me to fall through, but I fell through it. And I got down in, and it was Bobcat uh, Cave up at the far end of the gully. And the Bobcat come out. It must have had youth young in there. But came out after me. You're talking about an uh, older guy who was in his 30s climbing out of a gully up a, up a Kudzu bank hanging on the Kudzu. Now, I did that, but uh, but we had a lot of good... You were scared. I was flat-ass scared. Really? Yes, sir. Would a bobcat take you a down? A bobcat, a mama bobcat worried about her uh, or a bobcat kittens back up in that cave. Yes, sir, she would take you out. And, of course, there was a lot of snakes down in there also. It wasn't a good place to be, <laughs> you know. It could have been a rattlesnake den. By down the way, there. y'all, this is all true. Jerry Shorten, Takapola storyteller. <laughs> He's got the stories. Well, I mean, it's just unbelievable the things we did, you know. And and uh, another one we'd do a lot of times. Uh, with usually had two good mules. I know we had uh, old Bert. Each family or like in a town? Well, each each little farm would have two good mules for good hard work. You know, you might have a, a 1954 Ford uh, tricycle tractor. Or a or John Deere tricycle, or a spread forward one, but uh, you always you always had a couple of good mules. But for some reason, one mule you could ride and one mule you could not ride. And you'd you'd have a friend with you on the farm and you'd be working. And we had two. One was named Bert, and one was named Blue. And you couldn't hardly tell them apart. And I would go and I'd lead Bert around. Blue was the one you could not ride. And this friend of mine was with me. He'd go to the farm all the time with me when we were really, really younger. You know, I'd say 14 maybe or 13 even. But I'd put him on that other, on the mule you couldn't ride. And Intentionally? Was, oh, yeah. You I'd say, devil, you. I'd say, you get, on, you get on blue, and I'm going to ride Bert, and we're going to go back to the house. Well, he went to the house, but he went fast because blue would take him straight to the barn. And when blue run in her stable in the barn, 
that that uh, plank above the head just cleared her head, and it would lay him out. Whoever was on that thing and couldn't jump off would get knocked down when that view went in the barn. Mm. So I mean, that, you know, it was stuff like that that we did as kids. And you know, and I, I know you said that you think uh, it's better to play with computers and all that. And you are learning a lot more. But it depends on what your profession is going to be, I guess, at the end. Because if you're going to be a farmer or something, you need to know some of this stuff that goes on on the farm. So uh, This show's not helping out with people who are thinking about going into farming. Well, this is 1950s and 60s early farming, y'all. So uh, it's not like that now. You know, now they got 12-row cotton pickers. Back in the old days, uh, we didn't have that near that many because my daddy would put me out there in the field. Uh, watching the uh, people that had to hoe the cotton. Cause I know when I got in the Army, I'd tell people they wouldn't know what I was doing. They'd say, what? They, everybody up north always thought you had a plantation, like gone with the wind. If you're from the south? If you're from the south, you know. And they'd ask me, what do you do on the farm? And I'd say, well, I tell you, I was usually in charge of all the hoers. <laughs> and they would say, what? I said, yeah, that's what my daddy had me doing, watching the hoers. And he'd say, they'd say, Golly, what kind of job? What are you? What are y'all running on the farm? And I'd say, Well, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta hoe that cotton. And he said, What do you mean? I said, You don't know what a hoe is? You take a hoe and you cut the grass with a hoe. And I said, I was watching the hoers. And it's, uh, all those Yankees, I couldn't figure that out when I would tell them about that. But uh, you know, there was things like that you could do too. It was always a lot of, lot of fun. And uh, anyway, it was. Uh, Things like that, and you know, and I, I could, I could tell you a lot of other stuff. You no, know, please that, don't. That's yeah, enough. That's enough. Jerry know. Short, the Takapola storyteller. We've already reached a new low by you talking about hoers. That would be H O E R S, I guess. Oh uh, yeah, like uh, you. I'm sure you use your, uh, you use a hoe around your uh, rose rose bed, don't you? No, I don't. Cause I don't <laughs> have a rose bed. But if I did, I'd, I'd know who to call to help me out with that. Well, don't Jerry, do it in a cotton field. Okay, Jerry Short. We've been talking. Kudzu, watermelons, and <laughs> other craziness from his past here on the Y'all Show, as we often do. You just never know what Jerry Short brings to the table. And uh, what was that stuff the guy used to put in watermelons? Croton oil. Does that still exist? I bet if you went to the uh, drugstore and asked for it, or if you went to, uh, like my daughter's got a pharmaceutical uh, compound pharmacy, I bet they could look at the... Uh, at the recipe of it and drop you some uh, croton oil in a bottle. But it doesn't come. Yeah, I don't think you could buy it in the store anymore. Like a, you know? But it probably only had one purpose back you know, then. Yeah, we had all kind of stuff like that. Watermelon theft prevention. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> croton oil, number one. Uh, oh, number one. Okay. Yeah. Jerry Short, he is our Takapola storyteller. Thank you so much for dropping by. Have a good rest of your day, sir. Oh, man, I'm not going to drink the curtain oil, but I'm here to stay. All right. Jerry Short, everybody, the Taco Bell Storyteller. We've got more of the Y'all Show on this Tuesday coming right up. Yes, been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long 
since I've seen that Letting down your hair, double dog there, look in your eyes Oh, and you've been burning it at both ends Been a hot minute since you flipped that switch Girl, it ain't nobody's fault to shut the world off and turn it back to win It was you, me, and whiskey all night long Sinking to the bottom of them country songs is what happens when Arkansas meets North Carolina. That's Justin Moore and Priscilla Block and a song running fast up the country music charts right now, You, Me, and Whiskey. That's a great, great song. Wouldn't you agree? We're going to wrap up the Y'all Show here on this Tuesday with some great, great Southern sports news and more. And the big story from college football is that Skip Holtz has found a way on to the Northwestern Wildcats staff as Northwestern is expected to hire the veteran coach as a special assistant to the head coach for this football season. His assignment is temporary, and it won't appear with his other job, where he is the two-time champion coach of the USFL's Birmingham Stallions. And he's going to continue coaching Beham in the USFL in 2024. Northwestern, of course, has had plenty of off-the-field problems, firing Pat Fitzgerald a few weeks back and a humongous hazing allegation that's been put forth toward that institution. And they've got a, a host of problems there on the banks of Lake Michigan, north of Chicago. But Lewis Leo Skipholtz Jr., the 59-year-old head coach of the Birmingham Stallions who graduated high school in Fayetteville, Arkansas when his dad was coaching the Hogs back in the early 1980s, I guess was when he finished high school. Skip Holtz, of course, has been all over college football as an assistant and as a head coach. For a long time, he was it was the assistant coach of the Gamecocks when Coach Holtz was there in the early portion of the 21st century. And prior to coming to Columbia, he had been the head coach of the Connecticut Huskies and helped lead UConn to an FCS national championship before going to join his father. And he ended up becoming the kind of coach in waiting at South Carolina when his daddy was there. But ultimately, after Lou Holtz's tenure ended in Columbia, he didn't get a chance to take over that program because a guy named Spurrier did. So Skip Holtz ended up being East Carolina's head coach for a number of years. I thought he did a a mostly good job there. He went from ECU to South Florida where he was the head coach of the Bulls for a couple of seasons. And then he went over to Ruston and became the head coach of the Bulldogs over at Louisiana Tech and did fairly well helping that program go to one, two, three, four, five, six straight bowl games. And he won every single one of them six straight bowl games for CUSA member Louisiana Tech. That's pretty strong. That is pretty dang strong. But he would ultimately lose that job and get hired by the Stallions where he's been the head coach 
in their two years of existence, and he has won the USFL championship both years. In fact, this past season, he was the USFL coach of the year. Skip Holtz now moonlighting as a special assistant on the Northwestern Wildcats football staff. A report out that the Big 12 Conference is looking to add one more school as Colorado recently announcing that they're going to move over to that conference out of the Big out of the Pac-12 in the upcoming year 24-25 and I'm sure they're looking for a partner. Arizona, are you listening? Utah, are you listening? New Mexico State, are you listening? I'm kidding on that one. I don't think the Big 12 is going to expand to Las Cruces. But yeah, it looks like they're trying to have an even number when it's all said and done. When the when the music stops, the Big 12 Conference would like to have an even number of schools join up in their chairs. So that the news out of the Big 12, they're likely to add one more team and the conference alignment continues or realignment is the more accurate term college football will begin august 26th this year the first game will be on saturday august 26th when the navy midshipmen and notre dame get together at aviva stadium in dublin not the one in georgia but the one over in ireland this is your first college football game of the entire year navy and notre dame saturday august 26th there's a bunch of games going down on that week zero if you will of college football included in the fun on that first day hawaii visits visits nashville's first bank stadium and clark lee's vanderbilt commodores kick off their season in a big way early a whole week before everybody else in the sec and that's what's happening on that first college football saturday of August because I'm telling you this because it is August today. Happy August everybody. And our final sports headline comes to us courtesy of Arch Manning, the freshman quarterback at the University of Texas. He has sold his first trading card at auction through a website called Panini America and it broke a record by doing so. Arch Manning's one of a kind prism black autographed card produced by Panini auctioned off for charity and sold for $102,000. That is the highest selling card through that company's website, beating out one-of-a-kind Luca Janik's National Treasures card that sold for 100000 So this scrawny little Manning boy from New Orleans, who hasn't even taken a real snap in college football yet, has trading cards going at auction for over $100,000. At least it's for charity. It is absolutely a good thing, I assume. I don't know what the charity was, but congratulations to Arch Manning for his obvious success that he's got awaiting him. Of course, his last name's Manning, for goodness sake. That wraps up our Tuesday Y'all Show. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Podcast available on various platforms. We'll see you back here on Wednesday.